Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller. And I gotta tell you, I'm pretty excited about today's episode because not only are we talking about a super current movie, and by super current, I mean it just came out last Friday, uh, but we're also talking about documentary uh, for the first time on the show, and I am a huge, huge, huge documentary uh, fan. Uh, that's like the dream in life is to do documentary film. So the fact that we have an outlet here on the show and somebody who wanted to come on and talk about documentary film for me I was over the moon I was like sign me up I am ready to go (laughs) and this week we are talking about the brand new 2021 film The Velvet Underground which is a documentary by amazing the amazingly talented director Todd Haynes who directed my one of my favorite LGBTQIA films, which is Carol. Um, absolutely stunning film. And so I knew going into this, it was going to be a ride. It was going to be, you know, visually pleasing. And I knew it was going to mark off a lot of boxes for me. And I was completely blown away by this documentary. It's done in a way that I have not really seen a lot of documentaries be done. And it's an experience, let me tell you. If you haven't seen it already, it just premiered on Apple TV. Um, I think they have like a free trial thing that you can try if you are not already subscribed to the Apple TV lifestyle. Um, But it was absolutely amazing. And my guest today was so excited to talk about this film with me, uh, Bill Bentley, music producer, music journalist, and longtime friend of frontman Lou Reed of the Velvet Underground, as well as the original guitarist Sterling Morrison. Now, I, of course, could continue to talk about how unbelievably insane and impactful and interesting this documentary was, but I think I will just let you listen to the interview with Bill. Uh, We had an amazing discussion, and so I will stop talking. uh, Because it is a documentary, uh, I'm not putting in any movie clips, so it may sound a little different this week, but they will be back next week. And if you have a chance to watch the documentary, I highly, highly recommend it. So, without further ado, my interview with Bill Bentley about one of his brand new favorite films, The Velvet Underground. Enjoy! Scopophilia is the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Hey there, Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And I'm super, super excited for this episode. Uh, One, it's one of the most recent movies that we've ever talked about on the show. Uh, Two, we're talking about a documentary. And three, we have the legendary Bill Bentley, who is a music producer and music journalist. And so first and foremost, hi, and how are you this fine Sunday afternoon? Great. Well, thanks for having me. I'm doing great out here in Los Angeles. I got to see the movie we're going to talk about Friday night. I'm still kind of buzzing about it because it was... (laughs) So amazing. It just yeah. completely lit me up. Absolutely. Well, and so for, for people who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about what you do. Well, what I do now, I uh, write a music column for Neil Young's website, uh, neilyoungarchives.com. He gave me a monthly column called Bentley's Bandstand to write about whatever I want. And I also do some other work uh, with Neil on publicity and things like that. And I also write, uh, columns for all kinds of magazines, anybody I can actually write for. And I produce uh, albums. I just finished a tribute record. Uh, it was my second tribute for Rocky Erickson, a yes, great legendary see. Texas psychedelic guy. And 
that record came out in July. And now I've just started work on a tribute record for Lou Reed. Who else, right? <laughs> Who else? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, and so we're talking about the documentary it just came out last Friday by the time this posts. Um, and it's The Velvet Underground 2021, directed by Todd Haynes. And so why why this film? What Because I know you're buzzing about it and I know your history, but, you know, just tell the listeners. Um, you know, why this film? Well, you know, really, I think the reason for this film is the Velvet Underground are probably the most famous unknown band in the world. You know, the people that know the Velvet Underground's music worship it. I mean, without a doubt, it's probably their, among their favorite recordings ever. But it's a really still a pretty small group of people that know about it. And they had such an influence on the world of music and really the lifestyles of people and the freedoms that people have found. I mean, they were the they were the band that would sing about everything. There was no limits. But they were just, like I said, kind of unknown. And I think Todd probably felt like it was time to tell the story that we're all living with so many of the musical and societal freedoms the Velvets gave us, but don't even know how they did it and who they are. So I think it was really to educate people on something that they all love, even if they don't know who they are. You know, it's kind of like a mystery yeah. solved. That's really what it feels like to me. A friend of mine said, well, you know, I didn't, another velvet head like me said, I didn't <laughs> learn much about it. I didn't know. I said, yeah, but you know everything. 99% <laughs> of the population in the world knows nothing. And that's what this movie really does. It, it shows you what an incredible force the band was, how courageous they were to sing what they were singing about and sound like they sounded, and never, ever once back down. Like if it got weird for them and record companies would drop them or people wouldn't let them play their venues, they, they just turned it up more and did exactly what they wanted. And I think there's a great lesson in that, to believe in yourself. That's what I think the Velvet Underground stood for from even before they started playing in public. Because they quit playing as a band. They, they started the Velvets and quit because nobody cared about them. But they came back and they, you know, got their own clubs to play in and made their own records before they found a label. So they they sort of created the indie uh, do-it-yourself model before anybody had ever heard of that. Absolutely. Way before they'd heard of it, like 25, 30 years before they'd heard of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I was so excited um, when Robert connected us to talk about this movie um, and then especially after reading the article that you had you had written about Lou Reed and your connection with the Velvet Underground. And so as somebody, I, well, okay, let's start with, you know, you have a very intense personal connection. Tell us a little bit about your connection with the Velvet Underground. Well, in the 60s, I became an absolute rabid fan. But being down in Texas, they never really played Texas. The only time they played Texas, I was on a probation uh, with the state of Texas, and I was not allowed to go to the club where they were playing. Oh, so I didn't no. even get to, I didn't even get to go see them, though I thought like, well, am I going to get caught if I go? And I thought like, I can't really mess around with the, right. the legal oh. and people in Austin. <laughs> so I didn't get to see them, but I loved their music so much. And then uh, living in Austin for a few years, I had heard that Sterling Morrison, the guitarist for the band, had moved to Austin to pursue his PhD. And it took me a few years, but I finally got to meet him. And we became really good buddies. And then I got him to join our band, the Bizarros, as a guitarist. And just through those years with Sterling, it's like he every night we'd hang out and he would just talk about the Velvets and things that had happened and how they did it. And just every like even the, his, his memory was just voluminous. And so I got to learn probably more about the Velvets than anybody in history, hanging with Sterling and really just getting because the unvarnished story. And so by the time I moved to L.A. and started working for a record label, in 1988, our label signed Lou Reed. And so I was a publicist. So the head of my department said, well, you actually like Lou Reed, which he was a little, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he'd already like created some problems for himself at the label. Right, so right. he put me in charge of his press. So I got to start working with Lou, having spent those years with Sterling and kind of had the velvet history down. And it's funny, the first time I went to meet Lou in New York, before he even said hello, he said, come with me. We were in a recording studio. We walked into a little room in the back of the studio and Lou said, here's how it's got to be. 
Sterling remembers everything. I remember nothing. So don't ask me anything about the Velvets because they had a little bit of a strange relationship. But, you right. know, through the first six months of working with Lou, his, his record, New York, was just coming out. Right. He, I think mm-hmm. he I think I gained his trust that I wasn't in it for anything other than the love of the Velvets music. So he started opening up and talking to me about it. But over the course of, well, the, he was still with the label like another 12 years. And then till his death in 2013, we remained friends for like, that was like a total of 25 years. I counted it up the other day. And it was just this, just like, if, if that's one of your favorite people in the universe in terms of music, and then you get to be next to him all the time and become, I hope, what you would call a friend. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Right. And so I, w- I was sort of like, I think I was put on earth, not just to be friends with Sterling, which was so much fun, but also <laughs> to work with Lou Reed and do my best to help him have a, uh, a second sort of second stage of his career. Cause really in 1988, when he made New York, he'd kind of fallen off the map a little bit. Mm-hmm. People didn't pay as attention to him like they used to. And with that record and everything that came after that, right up to the last record he made with Metallica, you know, Lou was really in the public light and he liked that. I mean, when he saw the movie, he would tell people at the start of his like high school years, I want to be a rock star. Right. And, and, and you know, so it's not like here's a guy that's like a shrinking violent wants to just make these great <laughs> albums. You know, he wanted to be a star because that's what musicians want is to be heard. Mm-hmm. I think star is the wrong word for Lou. He wanted his music to be heard. He knew how good it was. He knew how unique it was and what a great uh, songwriter he was. It wasn't like he was shy about it, but the fact that he wasn't known like, you know, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or those other bands or Bob Dylan even. I know Lou, he knew for a fact he was in that realm. It's yeah. just his subject matter was a little uh, different than theirs. <laughs> just a smidge, just a <laughs> it, it little bit. It wasn't quite everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> but that was his thing. He would always say, look, he called me Billy B. He said, Billy B, like, you can write books about this stuff. You can write books about anything. How come you can't write songs about it? And I think one of his real goals in life, and he, and he achieved it, was to, write, to be able to write a song about anything. Mm. I mean, he wrote heroin, as they said in the movie, when he was in high school. Right. You know, and heroin starts as a folk song. I've heard tapes of the earliest days and when the Velvets got it, they amped it up. But he was writing like songs like heroin as folk songs when he lived with his parents when he was in high school. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anybody else was doing that. Right. Right. 19, what, 60? (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's so incredible to have somebody who knew Lou Reed and Sterling Morrison to come and talk about this movie. And so for somebody who had such a close personal relationship for so many years, do you think the movie did them justice? I guess it's my first question. <laughs> I would say the movie did them beyond justice. Oh, good. Because the way it's put together, it's put together in such a humanistic ways that really showed what was going on in their lives before the Velvets mm-hmm. and how when that uh, foursome, really, before Nico got put into the band, because she obviously was put in the band by other people. Right. Uh, they had such a unique sound. It didn't sound like any, like, it was Lou's idea to make Mo Tucker, the drummer, not only play standing up, but turn her bass drum on its side so she would have to hit it and the beater would come up upside down on the bass drum so she couldn't play backbeats. You know, oh. she had to play drums different. And right. Mo, Mo's favorite drummer was a guy from Africa named Olatunji. So she fashioned her rhythms on African beats. And you add that to like rock and roll guitars. John Cale, one of the you know prime young composers in the New York art scene playing viola. And then Lou's just absolute love of all kinds of rock and roll. And I, I can't ever think of a band that had four such disparate elements together. And they gelled. It worked. You listen to that fir- first record and it, it's it's like this beautiful marriage of a sound that had never been made. Not yeah. to mention the subject matter of the songs themselves, right. you know, <laughs> which, you know, way out in left field. Absolutely. Well, and it, it was very interesting to watch because I'm I'm somebody who knows of the Velvet Underground, but not really the details or, or like mm-hmm. the deep dive kind of stuff. And so to watch it, it it was an experience for sure. Were you fascinated by it? I mean, did the movie really, work for you? I really was. I was a, I was a little confused because I was at a, a knowledge disadvantage about the band other mm-hmm. than like knowing some of their songs. But even throughout, it made you focus on what was being said about really the did. band. 
And also the experience of like, the movie itself is kind of shot, well, put together in like an avant-garde kind of way, which was kind of a tribute to them and Andy Warhol. It was so, it really was an experience. And I know you had said beforehand, you know, if you have a chance, watch it in theater. And I'm like, yeah, that would be be rad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the sound just totally takes your head off. And then the, the, the different images, the way they're set up and used. And, you know, the way that Todd told the story, too, I thought was like it couldn't have been done any better. Because he doesn't assume you know who they are, mm. but also he tell he doesn't pander to their weirdness, right? You know, and you could have. I mean, a lot of people like, well, they wrote about heroin, they wrote about homosexuality, they wrote about sadomasochism. You know, people use those buzzwords to make you afraid of the velvets. And as Lou always said, it was just rock and roll. You know, right. there was nothing weird about it. It's just nobody had done it before. And I think the movie shows you how uh, just. It was almost like a fluke of nature that they came together and got to make those first two albums. I mean, the band changed on those second two records. They are still great records. But those first two records were so experimental. And the movie really sets up. A lot of it was the freedom that Warhol gave them, which uh, Sterling would always tell me. Andy would always say to them, like, it doesn't matter that people hate you. You know, that that's not what's important. There's no such thing as bad publicity. Just keep doing <laughs> what you're doing and everybody else will someday come around. I mean, it did take a little longer than they thought. But and Sterling told me once, he said, without Andy's encouragement, they might have broken up because it was dejected. You know, they couldn't even get a job in New York City. Nobody would wow. hire them. And they moved to Boston. And uh, so, you know, it was a tough road when they started. They could play the Warhol parties, but that wasn't the music crowd, really. You know, those right. were film people mostly yeah. playing at the factory all the time. And sometimes they didn't even have a place to play, which is why they got control of a place in the uh, East Village and started putting on their own shows there, the Dom. But they just they had a really rough road at the start and no record labels would sign them. You know, every label they went to said, well, you got to take out the drones. You got to take out heroin. You got to take out this feedback. You got to do all this. And every label just went like, that's what you have to do. And they said, no, 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 no until the label called Verve, according to Sterling, signed them and never even listened to them. They just thought like, oh, oh Warhol, we'll put his artwork on the cover and sell the record. He said they had no clue what the Velvets sounded like. And so to sort of mess with them, the Velvets, when they put their artwork together for the first album, they found all the negative quotes that had been written about them and put them in the album. Ah. And, so, and Sterling said, yeah, people open this up, buy a record and then tell... Right there in the booklet is like, this is the worst band that ever played. (laughs) And they were going to use that quote, the share quote, which the only thing the music of the Velvet Underground will replace is suicide. And and at the last minute, you know, Verve read it all and took a lot of it out. But they really wanted just to scare people like, why why did we buy this record if even the band is telling us that can be so? But that was it. That was their avant-gardism. They didn't look at promotion as being what everybody else does, which is smile and get your picture taken like they want you to take. If you look at most of the pictures of the Velvets in the early years, they're not smiling at mm, all. Yeah. And, and they're dressed in black and they're scary looking. And uh, and that's why they put Nico in, because I think uh, Warhol and his pal Paul Morrissey look, looked at him and went like, this is not going to work. We need somebody <laughs> that people can look at. Right. <laughs> Well, People thought Mo was a man. I mean, they didn't know what was going on. Right. Well, and it's so interesting to see like those pictures when they go to LA and yeah. somebody had said, you know, um, oh, I think it was Mo had said we were sitting around the pool and we were all dressed in black. And we were like, this is different. And it's like, that's the biggest <laughs> like example of East Coast versus West Coast <laughs> energy I've ever heard in my life. That's right. <laughs> And uh, they told me a story when they first went up to the play the Fillmore in San Francisco, which was the place to play on the West Coast, that mm-hmm. the guy who ran it, Bill Graham, hated them so much because, you know, they didn't believe in peace and love. They were espousing the use of heroin as opposed to LSD. They showed up for a sound check and it was raining outside and he wouldn't even let them in the club to bring their equipment in. He made them stand out in the rain till the club opened for the people that were going to come in. Oh my gosh. And so they just went oh like, God. we're never coming back to San Francisco. Right. <laughs> they found other clubs to play there, but you know, that the main guy that's running the show in San Francisco won't even let you in the club that he's hired you to play in. Right. You know, the, fi- the fix is in. 
Well, I mean, how how punk rock are all it's of where, it's where it started. Oh my it's, gosh. It's 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 where, you know, the the essence of punk rock was always like, we don't care how we look. We don't even really care how we sound. We just want to be exciting and different. And right. the Velvets, they had the same ethos, but they sounded great because they were <laughs> incredible musicians. Yeah. I mean, they could really play. For sure. And uh, that, that, if you listen to their records, you, they could not have done what they did if they really weren't almost like savants about the music. Right. When you listen to a song like Venus and Furs or Sister Ray, or nobody was doing that no. at all. No. Well, and I mean, it, it's so... It's so interesting, like, from my perspective as someone who doesn't know everything like you do or have that history to come in and be like, I know this song. I know this song. I know yep. that song. And now I have a, a face and a legacy to kind of put it behind of like, oh, these were so important because X, Y, and Z. And you do hear, I mean, even like you said, the buzzwords at the time were like homosexuality, mm-hmm. um, uh, drug you know, addiction, d- drug addiction, sadomasochism. It's like, what are people singing about today? Homosexuality, yeah. drug addiction, <laughs> sadomasochism. So like it uh, all started here in this very like artsy way, which kind of blew me away. <laughs> and they were kept outside, way outside the mainstream. I mean, they were almost outside the outer stream. And I used to always, when Lou and I would talk about it, and you know, he was the kind of person, he didn't really like to look back. He definitely didn't live on his laurels. Mm. He never talked about the things that he'd done. It was always about what he was doing now or what he had in mind. But I used to tell him, I said, you know, really in the end, Lou, you won. You won that war. And he, he would kind of give me a little smirk and smile, but all the things that they told them that they couldn't do, play 20 minutes. They were the first band to have a seven-minute song on an album. <laughs> and as Sterling would say, it, it was seven minutes because that's how long it took to play it. It wasn't to be weird. And they, everything that they'd done that they were told they couldn't do, now everybody's doing. And it's almost like commonplace. I mean, mm-hmm. how commonplace is a drug song? People don't even like, think twice about oh, it. Oh, right. 100%. So I think that uh, Lou was, he was proud of that. You know, he, he, Lou knew how good he was. He just didn't need to tell you. He figured right. let the work speak for itself. And he was always pushing himself to go into areas. Like he made a record in the 2000s, I think it was 2004, called The Raven, which he took a lot of Edgar Allan Poe poetry and put it to music using people like Willem Dafoe and the Blind Boys of Alabama and Ornette Coleman, all these really people you wouldn't, Steve Buscemi, the actor, right. you wouldn't think they would be on a record by a rock and roll guy. But he was, it, it's like to him, his grounding in the avant-garde guard was so heavy that that's what he thought about his whole life. Mm. You know, he never thought like, well, if I did more rock and roll, I'd probably be more popular. It was, it was like what interested him. Right. How could he really push himself into staying interested in it? Because he saw a lot of people around him who'd been big stars. It didn't do anything for him. You know, they ended up hating the music they had to play. Right. And he never did. He loved playing guitar. He loved singing. He loved, you know, getting different people to sing with them that were kind of outside the mainstream. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know uh, when I was working with a jazz singer like, named Little Jimmy Scott, uh, Lou got him and his band and they toured. And then he got a singer named Anthony. I think it goes by Ahoney now to oh, sing okay. in his band. And just people would just go like, where do you get these people, Lou? <laughs> <laughs> but his antenna was always up. Like what turned him on? What did he right. hear that he liked? And it wasn't really the normal stuff that much. Mm. He loved rhythm and blues. He loved uh, gospel music. He loved doo-wop music like crazy. But, you know, he didn't use that much in his own music. It's just what he liked to listen to. Right. Well, and a talent like that is so rare in terms of like, I'm going to do what interests me. That's right. It's so rare. And it's, it's so apparent in his work throughout, for sure. From the start, he told me he went to Syracuse University uh, in New York for, I don't know if he ever finished, but. Anyway, he had a poetry professor named Delmore Schwartz, who he got very close to. And he was, Delmore was very influential, influential on the way Lou wrote about things. And Delmore said, like, you know, when I'm gone, I'm going to keep my eye on you. And if I see you sell out <laughs> and write things normal, I'm coming back to get you. <laughs> and Lou was going, like, yeah, he died, but I was still afraid. You know? like, but it was just somebody in his conscience put, like, don't sell out. Right. Don't you dare sell out. You know, I will be so uh, sad if you become like everybody else. And I mean, never, ever did. I mean, he was always, I, 
I, I know we spoke some about doing a new record about two months before he died. He, he'd gotten sick in uh, the spring. He got mm-hmm. a liver transplant and had done very well with, with the uh, uh, effects. But then in September, he started feeling bad again. And so I said, well, why don't we think about making a record? And he said he hadn't been writing any songs. So I said, well, why don't you pick 10 songs that you love and we'll record those written by other people? And first he said, no, he couldn't do that. And then I think he saw the writing on the wall and he said, well, yeah, maybe we can do it. And then uh, about, I think it was about a month and a half before he passed, he really started getting sick and he, he just couldn't sing like he wanted to. Oh. So we didn't get to make that record, but it was a lot of fun picking out songs. Cause I'd always tell you like, you know, Lou, I think you could do this song. He said, I'd never sing that song. And then about a week <laughs> later, he'd call me and go like, I can do that song. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I'm sorry we didn't get to do that, but uh, yeah. it, was, it was fun just talking to him about that on that level. Oh, I bet. Well, and, and so in looking at this movie, it's incredibly avant-garde. It it definitely has that like Warhol flair to it, which mm-hmm. is very indicative of of that time in, in their careers. Was there like a favorite moment of this, like whether it's like a scene or how they did something about, you know, this documentary that you were like, yeah, that's my favorite part about this. <laughs> you know, there was the, one of the just the personal scenes I liked a lot was his sister talking about it. Because it was just, it, she just kind of made it so human, yeah. You know, and she was kind of dancing around, and it just felt like I met her once, and I asked her a couple of questions about Lou's uh, early life. He said, "She told me, no, 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 no. You're not getting that out of me." <laughs> She's a psychologist. I so, saw. Yeah, so uh, that was that was very heartwarming to me. And there was some early uh, film of the Velvet Underground, which, like I said, I did not get to see that band then. That just showed me just the like. It was almost like the raw power of what they had. It was it was, it was almost cacophonous, but yeah. you know, with the two guitars and Kale on viola and Mo with the African drumming, it it just it it felt like a train coming at you. Yeah, and uh, I think I think that they captured with using that film uh, segments really what how strong they were. Because mm. a lot of people to this day probably still don't know what they sound like. They just know that you know they're weird. Right. And uh, and they kind of leave it at that. But mm-hmm. when you see how they played on stage, gosh, it was just amazing. It was, and, you know, when Sterling was in our band, I mean, we played like old rock and roll songs and stuff. And I used to watch him before we go on. He'd be pra- uh, practicing to warm up, and he'd be playing like the chords and stuff to like heroin and the songs that he knew. Right. And then, but I never did get to see him really play like that. But then to see him on stage playing like that, you know, I was just like so proud of him. I mean, this man accomplished so much and, you know, he came to an early end and kind of left the fold of music and became a tugboat captain right. in the Houston Ship Channel because he was getting his PhD and it took him so long to get the PhD that he'd kind of fallen off the career track of being hired as a professor. I mean, it took him 14 years right. of working on it. So to make money to support his family, he'd gone down and started working on the tugboats in Houston. And eventually, <laughs> when he got his PhD, he couldn't get a job teaching. So, and he probably liked the tugboats because he, he was just an odd guy. You know, right. he liked different things. <laughs> and uh, so I was just so proud for him. I just wish more than anything that he could have seen this movie because he knew what they'd accomplished. You know, he wasn't, he, he didn't brag about it. In fact, it took me two years to find him in Austin because he was going by his first name, Holmes, because he didn't oh. want to have the velvet thing hung on his neck. Right, and everybody I would ask to introduce me to him, they would go, like, "Oh no, no, you don't want to meet him. He's really <laughs> cantankerous," which he was. But yeah. uh, I was just so proud for him that now his accomplishments will be seen forever. I mean, Mo's gotten a lot of acclaim, and for sure, John Cale and Lou, you know, off the charts. But I think in this movie, Sterling really comes across as a really not just great musician, but a real thinker. Yeah. You know, he helped put this thing together. Lou nicknaming the Vulcan warrior of the Velvet Underground. <laughs> After he died, Lou wrote an obituary in the New York Times because oh, he said yeah. Sterling's just strength. He's a real strong guy. He played basketball every day. And, you know, he just said he was a very muscular guy. He was a tugboat captain. <laughs> uh, and so he was the real warrior of the band that, and he could talk better than anybody I've ever met. He could argue 
anybody into the ground, (laughs) (laughs) which he did around Austin a lot because it was kind of a little backwater and he would start spousing off some of his views and people are like, oh, no, I can't listen to that. And (laughs) Sterling, sometimes we go home and and Sterling would go like, well, you know, I'm willing to change my mind about anything, but I'm not going to admit I'm wrong when I'm talking to somebody. (laughs) Just a beautiful guy. Beautiful, beautiful guy. And so I'm glad that he is seen in the light, which I I would want him to be seen in all these years. Just overall, the movie, yeah, it had a a sort of a aura about it that really said this was something important. This wasn't like a rock and roll band on the road and, you know, getting on private jets and doing, I mean, if you look at it, Nico was the bus driver for the band. She was the best driver in the band. I don't know if you noticed that scene where she's <laughs> yeah, driving the bus. That. All the other people let her drive because <laughs> she she could drive it. Uh, and it's just like really great stuff that shows how unique they were, even in a place like New York mm. at the time that had a lot of avant-garde stuff going on, but didn't have much avant-garde music, rock and roll music. I mean, their peers back then were like the Young Rascals and the Loving Spoonful mm-hmm. and you know, real popular bands. And they were just off on this island. Yeah. And were so ostracized, like I said earlier, they moved to Boston and lived in Boston for over a year. Right. Because they just didn't feel like New York cared about them. Right. Which is well, kind of weird, you know, like home of <laughs> Sterling. It was media capital of Earth. How could they not understand right. what we were about? <laughs> well, they well, didn't make it any easier with some of the stuff they well. told. <laughs> in fact, well, here's a radio station. There's a Pacifica station there, and they were going to have a benefit to get the people arrested for marijuana and LSD out of jail. So the Velvets, they asked them to play the benefit and the Velvets said, yeah, sure, we'll play it, but let's get the people busted for heroin and smack. I mean, heroin and speed. And the radio station told them, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. Those are bad drugs. (laughs) And so the fact that they wouldn't do that benefit, that was the only station playing the Velvet Underground and they pulled their records and wouldn't play them. Oh my God. So the Velvets went like, adios, we're going to Boston. <laughs> right. Well, and, <laughs> and that's where they went. You? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, and you make a really great point about like the the tone of the film. Cause I mean, I've I've watched um the documentary about the Eagles. I've seen the one for Kurt Cobain and you know, a few others in terms of the rock and roll. And and you're right. In in those, it's more of a journey of this is how we met. This was hit our records, hit records, yes, and Mega. this is this is much more about the impact, right. wherein the kind of this the journey that they take to you know to the point where Lou Reed is you know solo and and everybody yeah. else is doing their own thing. You don't that's kind of a backseat story in terms of how important their work was. That's right historically, which is really kind of different for a documentary, I feel like. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons that works so well and, and the director was able to do it was because they were really such fascinating people. Mm. I mean, if you, I mean, the background on John Cale's childhood, right. it's like unbelievable. I had no idea some of that stuff that was happening. I just knew he came to America on a scholarship and studied with Leonard Bernstein. Right. You know, but just the, the the path he had to go through to get there was unreal. And Sterling, you know, he was sort of a, a biker on Long Island before he got in the Velvets and, and met Lou and all that. And Mo was just this woman who really never had played drums. Right. They said once her drums got lost or something, and they just pulled a bunch of garbage cans off the street outside the factory right. and she played those for a week or two. You know, so it wasn't like this big grand thought out thing. I think it was just almost like a study, and the film shows us a study in how to improvise your life. Mm. You know, because as an artist, that's kind of what artists do. They don't know, you know, a painter doesn't know what's going to happen. They might never make a nickel and have nothing to eat the rest of their life. Right. But they 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 believe in it so much, they stick with it, which is what the Velvets did. And there was no uh, roadmap for them because there'd never been a band like them. There's nobody like, well, see, they did it this way and we can kind of do it that way. And you know, get to there. And there was nothing like them. They had, they invented that whole kind of career and people have followed it, but nobody had done it before. Absolutely. I mean, if you think Dylan was big in New York when they were big, but he was, you know, with record labels and touring and doing all that stuff that took him to the top, but the Mm -hmm. Velvets didn't have that access. They really had almost no manager for the first three years. Right. They said Andy was their manager, but as Sterling said, he didn't have a clue Right. about anything in rock and roll. He didn't. He never right. was painting soup cans. 
<laughs> so they kind of just, they just, they said like for at least the first year, they just sat around the factory and would play yeah. there because they had nowhere else to play. Nobody knew how to book a show. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, how, how insane is that, that you have this like historically, musically, historically band who, you know, really paved the way for a lot of, you know, punk rockers, grunge rockers, yeah. um, you know, all of Art that. rock. Bowling, Hard everything, rock, metal, everything. like it's all there. And on top of it, you know, they have a record managed, quote unquote, by Andy Warhol, who's supporting them, who, you know, iconic figure in the art world. Yeah. And then and then also to have all of these different people connected to them. It, it's amazing to me that I didn't know any of this before I watched the film. Now, to this day, really, there's there's still an underground band in so yeah. many ways. I mean, they're. Their tribe of people who worship them, probably that's the most anybody ever worshipped any band. Yeah. I mean, we sometimes I'd be walking around New York with Lou and people would see him and just burst into tears. Oh you know, like, God. Lou, you saved my life. You know, you did this, you did that for me. And you know, he was pretty good about listening to it for like two minutes. And it's like, <laughs> let's go. <laughs> but I mean, it was just like they gave to the people who love them. And I think the film shows this. They gave a reason for being. Mm. I mean, because, you know, they kind of gathered all the rejects of society in a way, especially the rock and roll world. Oh, you know, th yeah. This, this wasn't like people that were going to see, you know, Sonny and Cher. This is a whole nother deal. And I think they, they gave them a strength of knowing that other people felt like they did. Right. You know, if you listen to Lou's and, and, the, and the rest of the band wrote some of the songs, but, you know, just the the way he could capture loneliness and despair and rejection. I don't think anybody's ever done it better. I really mm -hmm. don't. You listen to those first, well, all the four records really, and you just have these songs that touch on things that other people don't. Right. You know, I mean, it, just right to the end, you know, on the last record loaded, Lou had that song, I Found a Reason, that's just so beautiful. And mm -hmm. I, I've never heard anything eclipse that. In, in terms of just really saying like, oh my God, you know, how am I going to get through this life? <laughs> right. Well, and I think they do a really good job in the film of talking about his lyricism on a whole as well. Yeah. And, and really highlighting the fact that like, yes, he was writing about things that weren't societally normal or were hot button issues, but there's also a quality in, in how he's crafting things. It's very poetical when you, when you really kind of focus in on that, because obviously the music makes you feel something regardless. Right. Um, but then when you really kind of focus in on it, rather than just like having it on the background, it's, there's, it's there's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I, I mean, he studied poetry, you know, he studied poetry at Syracuse university mm -hmm. and he studied poetry in high school I mean, he was very well read and he, and he, and he loved books that were kind of based in urban reality. Mm. Like he loved the writer, Nelson Algren. He loved the writer, John Retchie. He loved people that wrote about urban situations. And he just, he wanted to do that. Nelson, he just wanted to write about things that he had lived and saw, but right. weren't in any songs. Right. You know, you pick up the Beatles records at that point. There's, there's no songs like this, period. <laughs> You know, not even the Rolling Stones didn't get into that till the seventies, really. Right. But and 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 Lou and and Dylan in some ways did, but it it kind of came at it from almost too poetic, where you mm. knew you were listening to a guy sing poetry. Right. And Lou and the other people sang those songs, the songs that John Cale sang too. It made it feel like you were walking down a New York City street with these guys and yeah. seeing what they were saying. It yeah. wasn't like fancied up at all in the poetry. It was like reporting yeah. in a way. That's how you felt. I mean, I'm waiting for the man, like total reporting, mm -hmm. going up to 125th Street to score, you know. <laughs> that, that wasn't like a poem. It was like a like what was happening in the city then. Yeah. And Lou was a master of that. And he his eye was always open for that. And another thing about Lou that he stressed always was the rewriting process. You know, he would write something and keep working on it and working on it till he knew he had it. And he would never record it unless he knew it was completely the way he wanted it. Right. And he would work on songs for a year or two and just keep at it until he was ready. Yeah. That, that was that was a beautiful thing to watch. I bet. Well, and it's it really so funny. Was. My mom says that all the time. She teaches um, she teaches college writing and mm -hmm. she says that 
all the time when she's writing. She's like, it's all about rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and just harnessing it and focusing it. And, and it's just, and it's so true. You, and you, the payoff, I think speaks for itself in terms of all the work that he put in. Oh, and it's forever. Yeah. You know, I, I know I've, I've published things that I didn't rewrite enough and I'll go back and read them sometimes and be like, boy. <laughs> that you could have really used a rewrite. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes, I mean, I'm guilty of this. You just want to get it away. Just like, mm. I'm finished. I got to send this away. I can't keep working on it. Yeah. But Lou never did that. He never did anything before he was ready to, he knew it was done. Right. And he would say like, this this one's finished. Let's, go, let's do the next one. So I, that's why he was so proud of that New York record. Mm. He, he, you know, he'd really worked on that for about two or three years. He'd bought a, a country house out in New Jersey and just, worked on those songs like i said for years and he knew he had it and then when it came out you know it was, it was the only gold record he ever got in america you oh, can wow. believe that <laughs> and it but and people were like it was so great to see what was happening because people were like whoa lou reed is back right and he knew it you know he didn't brag about it but you know you could tell he felt really good that he'd worked so hard <laughs> yeah a so much fun to watch afterwards <laughs> yeah <laughs> really man you know, more town cars. <laughs> we got out of the subway in the cabs for a while. Right. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you too, because I I don't know if I realized, because I'd watched the trailer before watching the movie, just to kind of, you know, get an idea. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize he had passed per se when the movie started, because they used clips of interviews with him to mm-hmm. talk about certain elements of his life and his career and things like that. Did that catch you off guard at all or, you know, kind of bring back things for you? It brought back things, but, you know, I'd kind of like been, like I said, such a student of Lou with Sterling, mm. the Velvet Underground years. And then when he started doing solo records, I stuck, you know, with just buying them all and reading everything I could. Uh, so I, I knew a lot of that stuff existed, but it was so great the way it was organized into the uh, film because you never got tired of it, mm. you know? And I think one of the, the brilliant, really brilliant things about the film is that the director only interviewed people who were contemporaries mm. of the musicians. Like he didn't talk to people who's like, Oh yeah, I read about the belly. I mean, you had to have been there with them or you couldn't be in the movie. Yeah. And I think that was smart because then it didn't become like the history lesson. Right. It was like a living lesson. And Jonathan yeah. R- Richmond was very key to that. Yeah. In fact, uh, Lou said when they got to, uh, no, Sterling told me when they got to Boston, Jonathan Richmond started hanging around them, you know, because he loved them so much. And they let him come over and hang with them if he would clean their house. So he, he was like their house boy <laughs> while they were living in Boston and, you know, let him into all the shows and everything. But, and then teach him guitar. He taught him a lot of guitar things oh, wow. and Kale produced Richmond's first record when he started making records. Uh, so yeah, it was sort of like, that was a fascinating thing to see how influenced Jonathan Richmond really was and how close he was to them. Yeah. I mean, what well, do you say? He went to 50 or 60 shows. I mean, that's probably every show they ever right? played in Boston. <laughs> well, and it's, it's so apparent because even just, you know, watching you talk about them, there's that same kind of energy that he had of like, really passionate about what this band did and how the band yeah. affected him even into his career i mean it it just is a testament to what what their music has done and that it has lasted until That's now right. <laughs> we know i've often thought listen to the velvets when they first started you know just on records it just felt like you're almost like holding an electrical cord right it just it just <laughs> had a it had a power and energy that other rock bands didn't have Mm. The only band I ever felt equally about like that was there's a band in Texas I used to see a lot called the 13th Floor Elevators. Oh. They were one of the inventors of psychedelic music, even though they were in Texas, which was kind of odd, but they were just so influenced by the use of LSD and how the songs they wrote. They had that same passion and just like they were they were giving you a total world when you listened to them. It wasn't like, oh, that sounds like that or that sounds like that. It's right. like they invented a new world you could live in when you listen to them. And there's really, you know, it's hard for me to think of other bands that really did that. Mm. But looking back, I mean, the, the Velvets absolutely did it and the Elevators did it because there was nothing like it before them. Right. And, and really, even though people say there's a lot of Elevator and uh, Velvet Underground sort of prodigies later, nobody really sounded like that. Right. You know, I can't think of, <laughs> I knew bands that worship the Velvet Underground and Lou, but you don't listen to them and go like, oh, they got it. 
Right. Because it was almost too unique. Mm-hmm. You know, just the way those they came together and the sound they made, especially the original band, was so different than everything else. And it never came back again. Like, yeah, they that band is like the Velvet Underground. Yeah. They might write like they do, like the, the subject matter, and they might try to play the music like they do, but it's not the same. Right. And I'm not knocking those new bands. I mean, everybody needs to be themselves, <laughs> but it just shows you how great the Velvet Underground was. And I think the movie captures that. I think the movie really captures how great they were. I it's think not so like too. you can go see and like, oh yeah, they were pretty good. They sounded right. okay. <laughs> it's kind of no. like a lot of things. You either love you either love it to death or you don't even care about it. Right. You know, it's not like, well, yeah, I think I'll listen to a Velvet album. You right. know, you want to listen to it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> It'll make me feel better. Well, right. it might not. <laughs> In its own way. Right. The lose line, don't forget lose line, the great line from one of his songs, down for you is up. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, and I, I mean, think he wrote you, about that, you know? Right. Well, and I think you make a really interesting point, which is like, there's one point in the film where they say like, you know, oh, Lou Reed, he was goofy looking. He couldn't sing. He could barely play guitar like this, that, and the other. And then, but it's also, it's, it's an experience. Like we've been yes. saying, it's like, you can't really critique the Velvet Underground is like, oh, they're good. Oh, they're bad because they were like an art experience. So it's almost yes. like a subjective thought when you're thinking about them, which is crazy. <laughs> you don't compare them to other bands. Right. You right. And you compare other bands is, to them. <laughs> yeah. It's almost like going to an art museum and looking at a painting, like say a modern art painting. You don't have a clue what it is. Right. But you know how it affects you and you can't explain what it is. It's, that's kind of like the velvet sound. Yeah. I mean, how do you explain like the drones and the viola and the feedback and all that stuff? And just, you can't really talk about it. You almost, you just have to know that it, it really moved you. Yeah. And uh, that's why writing about them is so difficult. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't, you didn't read many people writing about the velvet undergrounds, especially in the sixties, because nobody could. You know, they were kind of like banned from Rolling Stone because of the drugs and the hatred. You know, they weren't part of the love crowd. (laughs) And there were were very, very few things written about the band when they were actually still a band. Mm. You know, and it took years for people to look back and go like, oh my goodness. I mean, that was it. Right. And that happened, but it sure didn't happen then. They were so far, it's like modern art. It's so far ahead of its time. People are just like, Oh, that's just a soup can. That's nothing. Yes. Yes. I bet you wish you owned us one of those soup can paintings. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I bet a lot of people who were there when that soup can was around was kicking themselves for not grabbing one. (laughs) You know, Sterling told me when those are all lithographs, a lot of it, the Warhol would sign them and everything. But if there was an imperfection in the printing of it, they just put them out with the morning trash. (laughs) And he and he said sometimes they'd leave the factory. You know, they were up all night and they were going to go home and. Uh, eight in the morning and they look over there to be collected was all these stacks of Warhol prints. Oh my God. And, and Sterling goes like, why didn't we just take them home? <laughs> you know, that stuff is <laughs> right. out of control now, but yeah, uh, that, but it was ahead of its time too. Yeah. You know, it really was. And I think they really, they were artists and Warhol was an artist. And I think that's why they gelled so much. Yeah. Was because Warhol saw that in them. They weren't mm. just trying to make it as a rock band. In fact, they weren't even trying to make it as a rock band. They just wanted to perform what they wanted to perform, just like right. he wanted to paint what he wanted to paint. Right. And I think that's why that real connection happened and never really varied. I mean, sometimes they would fall out with him over, you know, how he would tape everything if they were around talking and Lou didn't really care for being taped all the time. Mm. So, um, cause he didn't know what was going to, it was going right. to be used for. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> he might not know what he was saying, but, uh, they really respected each other and they're right to Warhol's end for sure. Yeah. In fact, that's why John and Lou wrote that Songs for Drella album to really try to express what they felt about Andy Warhol. And I think it worked. I really, I think that's a beautiful record of like what you feel about somebody. They loved him so much. Truly the Velvet Underground probably would not have existed without Andy Warhol's support mm-hmm. at the start and giving right. them uh, courage to be exactly what they wanted to be. Maybe right. not in so many words, because Lou said he didn't really explain things. He would just, you know, very short sentences and such, but they could see what he was doing with his art. And I think they got power from things like, well, we're just going to do what we want to do with ours and not right. compromise. So I think, uh, I know they really saw him as a uh, mentor. 
Right. Well, and I think like we were saying earlier, like Lou had that kind of radar on at all times looking for other people much like him. And I think Warhol kind of had that too of just looking for other people to add to this kind of collect, this like artist's collection that he made in the factory. Yeah. And so it's definitely apparent that like, there's a reason they got along, even if they had their fallouts. (laughs) Lou would say sometimes Annie would come up to him and say like, how many songs have you written today? (laughs) And Lou would go like, you know, four or five. And he was like, that's not enough. You should work harder. Right. You shouldn't be lazy. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean... It does it does make me wonder because I agree with what you said. I don't think there would have been the Velvet Underground without no. War, Warhol or the factory. And so it is interesting to think like if they didn't have that combination of art around them all the time, what would the Velvet Underground have been? Yeah, it, that's yeah. hard. To, they probably couldn't have stayed together as a group because they wouldn't have had a place to hang out. Right. <laughs> they wouldn't have had somebody who gave them some notoriety by being in his world. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, and his encouragement, I don't know that they would have stayed together. Mm. You know, being in a rock band that is unsuccessful is really hard work. Right. You know, if you, if, you, if you don't have jobs and you don't have like getting record deals in the future. I think, like we said, I think Warhol's association got him the first record deal in yeah. some ways. I mean, Verve, the label they were on was basically a jazz label it had very few rock artists. Oh, well. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it wasn't like all the other labels that turned them down. So they right. might have not stayed together. You just don't know. But thank, you don't have to worry about it because they did. <laughs> right. Like, thank goodness. Yeah, <laughs> it all exactly. worked out in the end. <laughs> well, and I, I also wanted to just briefly kind of talk about the article that you had sent me. And I'm going to butcher the name of the website. Is it? Is it? It's by NWR. By NWR. Okay, good. I was going to try and pronounce all the letters together. It's going to be a mess. <laughs> it's, it's it's run by a director. I think his name is Nip, Nicholas something mm. Redding or Redding. He made that movie called Drive. Oh yes. Mm-hmm. And so he's kind of a famous filmmaker. Yeah. Nicholas W. Redding or something, and he started a website. <laughs> And a friend of mine uh, became the editor of it. And it's a very different kind of website if you really explore it. Yes. <laughs> but I mean, uh, so yeah, I just, nobody else would let people write articles that long. Mm. You know, just go yes. on and on and just, <laughs> they just don't. <laughs> well, I mean, I got to tell you, it's written so beautifully and you really get an idea of how important this time was for you. Oh, yes. And, and I mean... I was reading through it and I, I was reading through it again earlier today just to kind of dot my I's and cross my T's. But I mean, there's one of my favorite parts and, and you kind of uh, note this in the article as, of, as well is there's a, a moment where you're driving with Lou Reed in the car and he just says, I love this city. Oh, that was, <laughs> I, I, I still, can, I can hear it. You know, we were driving away from the Letterman stage door mm-hmm. towards the Hudson River you know what you get out of that show at 6 30 or 7 in uh you know the fall so it's just almost it's not dark but it's just golden mm. he just looked towards the river and th- through the trees on that street with the brownstones and he just said that to himself we weren't even talking mm-hmm. you know because i learned with lou you know there's times when he didn't want to talk you know mm-hmm. he was just in his own head and it just it it just killed me because there's never been anybody that had that feeling and able to capture the feeling of New York, like Lou Reed. Mm. I mean, he really is Mr. New York. Right. More than any other musical artist you could ever think of. And I'd say even more, I mean, maybe Scorsese, but, you know, (laughs) I just think Lou was always just so rooted in New York. Mm. And, uh, yeah, the way he captured that, man, I just, I just wish he was still here. Mm. Because I know he'd be making great records. I know he would be making great records. And, well, Um, I don't know if he'd have made it through the last president, but. (laughs) Well. (laughs) (laughs) Some didn't. (laughs) Some didn't, that's true. Well, and it would be so interesting to know, you know, what he thought of the movie, because as somebody who didn't necessarily brag, but was aware of, you know, his effect on things, it would be interesting to know, you know, what he, what he thinks of it. And yeah, it would have been, I mean, he, knowing him, he would have talked about the sound quality, whether the sound was mixed (laughs) right, whether they got the facts right. Yeah. But, you know, he didn't really 
talk about himself that much, which is interesting. Because mm. some artists, that's all they talk about. Right. But Lou was a different kind of artist. I think he came from an artistic background outside the music business. Mm-hmm. And that kind of formed how he thought about himself where he, and also he, he like I said, he knew how good he was. So he didn't really have to <laughs> tell himself and everybody right. within earshot that very often. Though <laughs> so we did one really funny thing. This captures Lou in a nutshell. We, we had done a, a, a live album that came out called Animal Serenade. And the way we made the album was really at the last minute. And I got the money for it from the label and it was, you know, down to the penny, how much we could have. <laughs> right. And we couldn't spend anything over that. So he's mixing. Well, he started to mix the record. We hired a mixer to mix the album, which was going to be 10 songs. Mm-hmm. As Lou got into the tapes, it was a live album. He said, oh, this is going to be a double album, which means the mixer is going to work twice as long <laughs> to mix 20 songs. <laughs> right. And we only had $10,000 to pay the mixer. So I had to call Lou and I go, Lou, I don't have any more in the budget. I just, we're out, we're out of money. And I promised the uh, chairman that it wouldn't cost a penny more than this. And that's the only reason he said we could do it. And I can't go back to him for more money. Right. So Lou in all seriousness and, you know, with humility said, look, call that mixer up and tell him like, do you like working with the real thing? And if you do, you'll do it for the money that you were going to pay you for one record. And I did. And the guy said, okay. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I mean, Lou, do you like working with the real thing? AKA him. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But he had a point. Yeah. You know, I mean, how many Lou Reed records are you going to get to mix in your life? And how many Lou Reeds are there? Right. 2004, there's like one, really, (laughs) who's making that kind of art. Yeah. And so it was so funny. It was so nice. (laughs) So he called me up about a week later when it was all done. And he says, is this the executive producer of my album? But she had not told me he was going to give me that credit, nor would I have asked for it. Oh, you know, you, you don't do that. That's just not cool. Right. And he, and he did. I think I'm the only executive producer he ever had on a record. Oh. He never, <laughs> but he was just happy that it all worked out. Right. I know when the guy flew back to LA, like, I think we had like $80 in the budget. He said, uh, can you get me a town car from the airport? And I goes like, how much is the town car? He said, 75. I go like, yeah, we can handle that. <laughs> but we spent like exactly a hundred thousand dollars to make that double live album. Wow. Which isn't much for a double live album. Right. Yeah. And only got the approval to do it the day before the show because the, the chairman wouldn't talk to me about it. But I got <laughs> into his office at like six o'clock the day before the show. Oh my gosh. I so mean, that record was really, and that's the last solo record Lou ever made. Wow. You know, the next record was with uh, Metallica. Right. Amazing. Well, I mean, Which I- Lou almost got in a fist fight with their drummer, but we won't go into that. <laughs> Oh my gosh. <laughs> Asked him to step outside. <laughs> probably for the best. Probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, is there anything else that you would like to say about this movie? Because I we're coming close to the end of our time together. Um, of course, we can speak a little bit afterwards. But in terms of this film, is there any other thoughts that you had? Y- you know, I, I think the main thought I, I go away from the movie with is that you know, because I've, I've been such a fan of the Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and all of them for so long. Mm. But I don't think this movie could have been made before this. I, mm. I don't think the world, I think there needed to be a period of time where the Velvet Underground really became sort of this aura in the musical world. Yeah. Otherwise, it just would have been a documentary documentary. But I feel like this movie is really speaking to something bigger than just a band. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it was a lifestyle change. Yeah. That, that period of life in the 60s in New York was when the world changed forever. Yeah. Before then, those things weren't being talked about. And yeah. now, you know, you talk about all the subject matter. It's like, eh, what else is new? Right. So, <laughs> you know, you really got to see it changing in motion mm. to where what they were doing was unheard of. And I think it needed to wait this long. I would often go like, somebody's got to make a movie about the Velvets, but it would have been too soon. Mm. And I think Lou, uh, this is going to sound strange, but I think in some way it's better that he's not around to critique it. (laughs) I I think it can live with a fuller life Mm. without, you know, band members taking it apart, which is easy to do if it's about you. You know, you always see the things you thought they either got wrong 
or they didn't cover. And I think with Lou, the movie really captured exactly who he was and is in reality, but also in infamy. Yeah. And and they're both together because he was a normal guy of that era. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, he was incredibly talented and brave and, and fearless. But, you know, he was a guy just trying to make his way with his art. Right. And And I think this movie captures that about all of them. And it captures that about Sterling and Moe, too, which would have been easy not to. Right. And even Doug Yule they work in. And, of course, Nico, because she was a big part of it at that of the first album. Right. But I think it it just, it's, it's a movie of this time that really explains that time. And yes. how it all changed in the direct. I mean, they were prophets. And they were right about what they were writing about. Yeah. You know, like it, the world went more their way than it did the San Francisco way. Right. If you, re- if you really look at it. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, I, I think it that shows just sort of the um, expansiveness of their vision of life. Agreed. I think that's what it really got. It, yeah. You know, they, were, they were looking at a whole other way of living. Yeah, for and sure. Things that weren't really even being talked about, much less written about. Yeah. In music. Right. <laughs> and that was Lou's whole point. Well, you write about it in books. Why not music? Why can't right. we do this? Well, we can and we're going to. And he never, never flinched from that. I mean, every record had some things on it that sometimes I would go like, oh my goodness. You go like, that's the way it is. <laughs> Amazing. I remember there was one of his last records had a song called Sex With Your Parents. Oh. And he wanted to put that out as a single. <laughs> I go, I don't know, Lou. So no, that's the single. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that's Lou. I, I mean, unbelievable. And I'm so honored just hit my own microphone. I'm so honored that, you know, we could get you on the show and talk about this film, especially since it's such a different documentary for such a different band, I think. And I mean, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about it first and foremost. It's my pleasure because really, there'll never be another documentary like this because there was never a band like this. Right. And there probably won't be now, but... I just, you know, it was great to relive these memories I had of these people. And, you know, while I wish they was, were still here, Sterling mm-hmm. and Lou, I was just felt so lucky yeah, to have gotten to know them sort of beyond just what's on the records. Right. Because it only amplified how great they were to me and the music they made together. That's so wonderful. I mean, so first of all, thank you. You're second, welcome. Second of all, you're welcome back anytime if there's other movies that you would like to talk about. Okay. Or if you just want to call me and talk about Velvet Underground, I'm happy to do that too. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you what, look at the Jim Marshall movie. Yes. If you can find it. I will. I will. And uh, that's a movie that really could be interesting to talk about because he was, an, I mean, as a photographer, not only was there nobody like him, I mean, it was just beyond what he accomplished. Yeah. And the way sure. he looked at photography, which was very different than everybody else. Yeah. And uh, you yeah, have a look at that and see what you think. I and will. I, have some, I knew him, so I have some funny stories. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, I'm calling Robert as soon as we're off the call. We're booking it immediately. <laughs> okay. Very good. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much. And My pleasure. Just thanks. <laughs> we'll do it again. Another huge, huge, huge thank you to Bill Bentley for coming on the show and talking about this documentary, which... I mean, I know I've said it several times, whether in the interview or even before in my intro, it is an experience. It is a visual interpretation of what that time period was like in terms of New York art and New York cinema and avant-gardism in like the late 60s and and how the Velvet Underground kind of inspired that and and pushed it forward. And, and now you can literally, after watching it, you can hear other artists using that kind of groundwork, which absolutely amazing. I can't recommend it enough. Definitely knocked my socks off for sure. And, uh, and if I have the chance to watch it in theater, I will be sure to let everybody know about it because it will be great. And I am positive about it. (laughs) Now, of course, I know, I know what you're thinking. It's October and we haven't really talked about any spooky movies 
Uh, and I hear you and I have a great one for you next week. So never fear. I've got you guys covered and I'm very excited to share this next one with you. Of course, if you need some spooky content now and you haven't listened to last year's episodes in terms of spooky, scary skeleton episodes, uh, we do have, of course, seasons one and two. Uh, season one in particular has uh, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Donnie Darko, The Avengers, and much, much more. So of course, you can go ahead and check all of those out as well as our summer sessions. Uh, I'm here for you. And if that's, you know, still not enough film content for you, you can always follow us on Instagram at Scopophilia underscore podcast, as well as on our TikTok at Scopophilia, the podcast, uh, where I post updates and anything that I am doing at the time. So make sure you are subscribed there so you know everything that's going on at all times. As soon as I know them, you know them. Additionally, if you want to show support for the show, uh, we do also have merchandise or merch, as they say in the biz. Uh, We have hats, we have shirts, and we have tote bags, which you can purchase on our website, which is ncpodcasts.com slash scopophilia. Uh, An easy way to find it is in our Instagram bio. Uh, It'll take you directly to our show page, which, of course, has all of our episodes and our merchandise as well. And since you're on the Internet already, you might as well rate, review and subscribe to the show. It always helps us out a lot. And I love hearing from you guys. So it's a win win for everybody. And don't forget to tell your friends and your family and your family of friends and your friends of family about us because we love talking with you guys, and we love keeping the conversation going. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. And I'll see you all next Friday. Bye!